Good morning. Um, we live in a world that is filled with common sayings. Common sayings that sound really good on the surface, but in actuality make no sense. They sound really good on the surface, but in actuality they make no sense. The thing is that we've gotten so used to hearing them that we don't even think twice when someone says it, right? But if we were to take a moment just to kind of dig deeper into these common sayings, you and I would realize just how ridiculous they really are. So here's an example, right? Have you heard anyone ever say, or maybe you've said it yourself, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're being sincere? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're being sincere. I actually didn't realize this, but this saying comes from a Charlie Brown comic strip, okay? So the great prophet and theologian Charlie Brown told us that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're being sincere. So there's this conversation that's happening between Charlie Brown and his best friend Linus, right? So Charlie Brown is talking to Linus about being confused and disillusioned by the things that he believes. And so Linus, being a good friend and wanting to offer some kind of comfort to Charlie Brown, says this. He says, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're being sincere. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong, right? I love Charlie Brown. I've seen Charlie Brown Christmas a million times just like the rest of America. It's a good, good show to watch during the Christmas season. And if you know anything about the comic, you know that Linus is a genius, right? Sure, I mean, he has a little bit of an unhealthy dependency on his blanket, and he's constantly sucking his thumb. But if you're kind of able to put all those things aside, it's hard to deny that this kid is a deep kid. He's a deep, deep kid, constantly saying profound things. And as much as I want to defend Linus this morning, I can't help but think that he is completely wrong when it comes to this matter. I mean, think about what he's saying, just for a moment. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're being sincere. It sounds nice, it absolutely does. I mean, if we were to put it onto a mug, we would sell millions of those mugs for sure. But if we were to dig deeper, just a little bit deeper, we would realize that that statement is far from being true. For example, what if a husband used that as an excuse as to why he cheated on his wife? That he wasn't wrong because he sincerely was in love with this other woman. We wouldn't accept it, right? Or what if an employee used that as an excuse as to why he stole from the company? That he wasn't wrong because he was sincerely in need of money. We wouldn't accept it. Or what if bin Laden used that as an excuse as to why he attacked America? That he wasn't wrong because he sincerely believed that Americans were evil. You see, we don't need 50 million examples for us to be convinced that simply being sincere isn't what matters. What does matter is believing what's true. Let me say that again. Simply being sincere isn't what matters. What does matter is believing what's true. And nowhere else is this more true than what you and I believe about God. Nowhere else is it more true than what you and I believe about God. So last week, right, we started this new sermon series at Seven Mile Road, 
entitled, What is a Healthy Church? And so for the next several months, week in and week out, we're going to be looking at a letter in the Bible called 1 Timothy. So last Sunday, Ajay uh, started this uh, the sermon series. He kicked it off, and he sort of told us the backstory to 1 Timothy. He told us the, sort of the, the prequel uh, to this letter that we're getting into. And what we learned last week was that this letter was written by a man named Paul, who was an apostle of Jesus Christ. And if you remember back to last week, we learned that Paul was actually someone who originally hated Jesus, and he was out to destroy and to kill anyone who followed him. But then one day, as he was on this road, ready to do that very thing, to destroy and persecute Christians, he comes face to face with Jesus, right? And that moment changes his life forever. So Paul goes from being a church persecutor to a church planter. And one of the first places, or one of the places that he goes to, to start a church, is this city in a place called Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a city that was sort of a tough place to start a church, right? It was a city with a lot of diversity. So people of all different backgrounds and religions and ideologies were all moving into this city, making this place home. It was also a city that was big on idol worship, right? It even had this temple that was dedicated to a goddess named Artemis. And much of that city's revenue depended on this temple and the selling of these, of these idols made in her image. So in other words, what I'm trying to tell you this morning is that Ephesus wasn't exactly the Bible Belt, right? Ephesus wasn't the Bible Belt because for most people in that city, Jesus was the last thing on their minds. And that's why when we heard last week what happened at Ephesus, it blew our minds. Because we hear last week, and we read the scriptures, it says that Paul spends three years in Ephesus, and the gospel begins to explode. Just three years in that city, and the gospel begins to explode. Acts chapter 19, verse 10 says that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. All the residents of Asia, think about what's being said there. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And what was happening was that tons of people were moving from idolatry and now turning and trusting in Jesus as their Savior. Lives were being transformed left and right. In just three years, God uses Paul to turn Ephesus upside down. And he goes into the city and plants a healthy church that's centered on Jesus, with people who are living in community, with people who are pursuing mission in just three years. Now, if the story were to end there, that would have been beautiful. I mean, Disney would have bought that script and made it into a movie, and we would all own DVD copies of it at our home, and our children would be watching it. It's a beautiful story of this city that's in ruins now coming and becoming restored. But sadly, it's not the case. Instead, we, we turn to 1 Timothy, and just three verses in, just three verses into this letter, we discover that this thriving church that planted in Ephesus and now transformed Ephesus was now in shambles, just three years in. And the immediate question that you want to ask yourselves is this, what in the world happened? What in the world happened? How could that be possible? How could such a beautiful thing turn so ugly so fast? And that's what we want to consider. Our hope is to take the next several months to study this church in Ephesus. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to take the, the first half of this, this series that we're going to do, and we're going to consider the damage that was done in Ephesus. We're going to take a look at what exactly happened when Paul left. What was the sort of the, the damage that happened in this church? And then we'll come back around again, and we'll consider God's plan to restore this church to its beauty and to bring it back to the health that it needs. So repair damage and restore beauty. That's how we're going to approach this series for the next several months, and we're going to start that this morning. But before we do, let's pray together. Father, this is your word, and we turn to it, and we know that it is profitable to us, that we don't just gather and look at your word because it is something for us to do on a Sunday morning. Instead, we get your word and we receive your word, and we know that your word is able to transform our lives and transform our church and transform this city. And so we don't take it lightly. We don't come before you this morning expecting nothing, but instead we expect everything. We want you to transform our lives. And yet we know that we are not able to do these things on our own. This is not dependent on us to do any of it. Instead, the same spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead now lives within us. And that same spirit is able to transform our lives from the inside out. And so we're asking that you would do that this morning. Open our ears so that we would be able to hear. Speak through my lips so that I would speak truth. Transform our lives and help us to be able to live in a way that is honoring to you and brings you much glory. Please hear our prayer. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the focus of the study for this morning is going to be from 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verses 3 to 11, was what Kurt read to us, right? And so when we look at this, this, this portion of scripture, what we notice right off the bat is that Paul's, t Paul, um, Paul's tone in this letter is different than he generally writes. He sounds a little different than when he generally, generally writes to people or to a church. Because typically when Paul writes to a person or to a church, he follows this, this certain format. He begins by introducing himself, right? He takes a moment to introduce himself. And then he goes on to address the person or the church that he's writing to. And then he moves on from there to take a moment to give thanks to God for these people. So he introduces himself. He addresses the people he's talking to. And then he takes a moment to give thanks to the people that he's talking to. This is his usual format. And this was even true when he wrote to a church in a place called Corinth, right? Now, Corinth was a messed up city and a messed up church. There was things going on there that was unbelievable. There were divisions in this church of all kinds. There were extreme cases of sexual sin that were going on in that church. There were members of this church that were taking each other to court. There was idolatry of all forms at this church. And yet, when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he begins by introducing himself, addresses the church, and then give thanks for them. That's what he does. But in this letter, we don't see that. There is no thanksgiving. It's almost like Paul has no time to waste. Instead, he feels a sense of urgency. So how does he start off? There's no thanksgiving here. Paul gets right into it by commanding Timothy to stay in Ephesus. It seems like Timothy was looking to flee. So he's telling Timothy, you need to stay. Stay in Ephesus and charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Charge certain persons not to teach 
any different doctrine. So what is Paul talking about? If you read all of 1 Timothy, you'll see that this word doctrine, or this idea of doctrine, is something that's repeated over and over again in this, in this letter. It's a major theme of this letter. In fact, the word doctrine is only used a total of 15 times in all of the New Testament. Only 15 times. And eight of those times are found in this one letter. So we know that this is a major theme in this letter. And so what does Paul say? Paul says, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So there's a few things that I want us to note from this verse. The first thing is, Paul's not really clear within this verse who these certain people are, or these certain persons are, right? So when you read this verse, you don't really get who is he talking about. But if you continue reading through this letter, you notice right off the bat that he's actually talking about elders and pastors in this church. He's talking about elders and pastors of the church in Ephesus. That's really important for us to notice. It's important for us to notice because these aren't just random people that are causing destruction in this church. These aren't just outsiders that are coming in and causing destruction to happen. These were actually men who were chosen to be shepherds of the church in Ephesus. They were chosen to be leaders and shepherds of the church in Ephesus. And so what does Paul say that they're doing? Paul says that they're teaching different doctrine. Paul uses similar language actually in different portions of scripture. For example, in this letter that he writes to a church in Galatia, he says this. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It'll be important for us to kind of consider this, this word different in these verses that Paul is speaking. What does he mean by different? Paul is not saying that there are a variety of gospels or doctrines that we can choose from and that he just prefers a particular one. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that there is only one true doctrine. There's only one true gospel, that everything else is false, and that believing in anything else will inevitably lead us to error and destruction. That's important for us to know. And so that's why we want to spend the rest of our time this morning focusing on what was it that made this doctrine that these men were teaching so different? And why was it so damaging to the church? Our main purpose this morning is to look at three reasons why this was indeed a different doctrine and as a result, false. So let's jump right into it, okay? The first reason these men were teaching a different doctrine because true doctrine is all about Jesus. These men were teaching a different doctrine because true doctrine is all about Jesus. So let's read verses 3 and 4. It says this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any, doc any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Once again, it's not completely clear from 1 Timothy as to what the exact content of these myths and endless genealogies were. The text doesn't really tell us that. But what we do know is that these men were spending all of their time and all of their energy and all of their effort focusing on things 
that really didn't matter. They were so enamored with trying to figure out things that had no answers while completely ignoring what was actually clear and knowable about God. It was just talk that leads to more talk or conversation that leads to more conversation, but in the end, nothing profitable is accomplished. And so we hear that this morning, and we may think to ourselves, you know, it's kind of hard for us to understand what Paul's talking about here. What is he exactly uh, describing, and, and how do we really see that ever really happening in this world? But if we think about it a little bit more deeply, we would know that this is absolutely something that happens. Consider the Da Vinci Code, for example. 80 million copies of this book was sold since it was released in 2003. 80 million copies. And it had much of the world examining paintings by Leonardo da Vinci, trying to figure out if some secret message was being communicated to us through his art. We were kind of figuring out, we are trying to figure out whether or not this prostitute, Mary Magdalene, was actually Jesus' wife. We're asking all sorts of questions. There were news shows that were discussing it, blogs that, we, that were being published about it, books that were being written in response to it. But what happens? In about a year or so, all of this excitement and conversation comes to an end, and it ultimately leads to nothing. 80 million copies of a book is sold, and endless conversations happen, and it all amounts to nothing. And that's what's sad about this situation in Ephesus, or even what's sad about this situation with the Da Vinci Code, is that even though there is so much that we actually do know about Jesus, it's all being ignored in order to discuss things that we don't know, or frankly, things that we don't care about or don't matter. And Paul is saying, instead of being devoted to these endless myths and genealogies, devote yourself to things that are of great value. And what does Paul say that that is? Paul says, what is of great value is stewardship from God that is by faith. Stewardship from God that is by faith. So what does that mean? So that phrase can probably be transferred, or translated rather, a little differently. Maybe it can be said that this is an orderly plan of God or the plan of God that is by faith. Or in other words, God's plan of salvation that is by faith, the gospel. Paul is saying, devote yourselves to the gospel. Devote yourselves to the gospel, not to these stories and endless myths and uh, genealogies. Devote yourself to the gospel. And that makes perfect sense for us. Here's why. So there's a story about Jesus in the gospel of Luke after he had resurrected. He's walking on this road, a road on the way to Emmaus. And he's walking on the road with two men. It's actually where we get the name of our church from, the seven-mile road to Emmaus. So he's walking on this road, and he's talking to these men, and he tells them that everything in Scripture, everything in Scripture, from the writings of Moses to the prophets, that all of those things were actually telling us the story of Jesus. That even before Jesus' name is even mentioned, that God's plan of salvation through his son is being orchestrated. And that this plan climaxes on the cross, where he is crucified, and then is buried, and then resurrects again from the dead. That the entire Bible, the entire Bible is communicating the gospel, this great news 
of God's plan for our salvation. And here's the thing about the gospel and how it's being communicated. God doesn't communicate his plan by using a secret code or by hidden language. He doesn't do that. Instead, he makes it plain to us. He makes it so that you and I can absolutely know it, that the entire world is able to know it. And that's why there's nothing else that we should be devoting our time and our energy and our focus on besides the gospel. Seven Mile Road Church, we need to pray that our church never becomes devoted to anything else besides the gospel. In all that we teach, in all that we preach, in all that we align ourselves to individually and corporately, we want to be about only one thing, about Jesus and his gospel. Everything else, everything else is secondary at best. But that's what these pastors at Ephesus failed to do. Instead, they were committed to a different doctrine, a doctrine that centered around meaningless talk. But we remember, and Paul teaches us this morning, that true doctrine is centered on Jesus. The second reason why these men at Ephesus were teaching a different doctrine is because true doctrine is rooted in a love for God and a love for people. True doctrine is rooted in a love for God and a love for people. So let's keep reading, starting at verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So whereas verses 3 and 4, four, Paul was using those verses to kind of describe what was happening in Ephesus and what these elders were doing, he uses 5 through 7 to talk to us about their motivation, their motive behind what was happening. Paul uses uh, his own example to kind of show us their motivation. He compares their motivation against his own. And so he's saying this. He's saying, Timothy, do you know why it is that I'm telling you to have these men stop teaching the things that they're teaching? Because I want you and I want the people at the church in Ephesus to grow in your love for God and to grow in your love for people. Because these pastors, these men, don't care about that. That's not what they're about. These men care more about themselves. They don't care about truth. They care more about talking out of their own mouths, saying the things that they want to say. Their hearts are not bent towards people or towards God. They do things for selfish gain. They're hypocrites. They don't even understand the very things that they're teaching. These pastors don't love God and they don't love people. They love themselves. And sadly, again, we don't have to look too far to see an example of this in the modern day context. You see, you and I can turn on the television on any given day and see certain pastors taking advantage of the poorest of the poor people, promising health and wealth for those who just plant a seed and place their trust in Jesus. But when we look at this scripture, we realize that these men don't really love God. They really don't love people. They love themselves. They have no regard for the truth of God or for the good of others. And Paul is saying, Timothy, 
don't be like these men. Don't be like these men who don't love God and don't love people, but love themselves. And he's also saying that to us this morning. He's saying, Seven Mile Road, don't be like these men. And that should be our prayer as well, that we may never become motivated by anything short of love for God and love for people. That in all that we teach and in all that we do as a corporate body and as individuals, that we may never do anything for selfish gain. That God himself would always be our greatest treasure. That he would be our greatest treasure. And that we would love people in the way that we have received love from God himself. But sadly, the elders at Ephesus were committed to something different, a different doctrine, a doctrine that only cared for themselves. But Paul is teaching us this morning that true doctrine is rooted in a love for God and rooted in a love for people. The third and final reason why these men at Ephesus were teaching a different doctrine was because true doctrine is for sinners. True doctrine is for sinners, and it leads us to our Savior. True doctrine is for sinners, and it leads us to our Savior. Let's continue reading this last portion. He says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have now been entrusted. You see, these elders in Ephesus, we just, we just said that they spent all their time talking and having conversations and discussing things that were meaningless, meaningless things, while ignoring the most important and pressing needs of our life. They were busy talking about meaningless things while ignoring the most important and pressing things about our life. For example, ever since Genesis 3, we know that this world has been trying to deal with the damage and the pain of sin. None of us, none of us sitting in this room this morning are unfamiliar with the destruction that sin causes. All we need to do is turn on the television for a moment and we see things like the tragedy that happened at Sandy Hook or the fact that sex slavery exists in this world. But it's not even just what's happening outside in this world. We see the effects and the destruction of sin in our own lives through broken relationships that we experience, through addictions of various kinds, through the struggles that we have with identity and image. Sin is destroying us externally and internally. And the entire world, the entire world is desperately trying to find answers to the destruction that we see all around us and within. But here's the thing about the, the pastors at Ephesus. They weren't concerned about these types of things. That's not what they fixed their energy on. Instead, they were too busy creating false stories and engaging in useless discussions while the world around them was falling apart. Consider who these men were. 
These were men who were called to be shepherds and pastors of the church. They were called to lead people to truth. And though they desired to be teachers of the law, they actually had no idea what they were talking about. Because if they did understand the law, things would have been different. The things at Ephesus would have been different. Because the Bible teaches that the law is given to us for a few reasons, right? The first thing that the law does for us is that it gives us an understanding of who God is. That when we consider the law, we are reminded that God is holy, that he is without sin, that God is good, and that there is never a moment where he is not good. But that the law also reminds us that we are far from being God. Right? The law sort of serves as a thermometer showing us how sinful we really are. I mean, maybe we read verses 9 and 10, and we look at those descriptions that are there, and we say, you know what? None of those things really describe me, you know? When I look at that list, I can kind of say, I, I mean, that doesn't really describe who I am or what my life is like. And maybe on the surface, that's true. But all we need to do is to consider the Ten Commandments. And if we consider them in the way that Jesus asked us to consider them, he said that when we lust after a woman, that when we lust after a woman with our eyes, that we have committed adultery with our heart. He said that when we're angry, that when we're angry at someone, that we've actually committed murder in our heart. And you can go on and on with each one of these Ten Commandments, and if you were to consider them in the way that Jesus has considered them, you would find yourself to be a lawbreaker a million times over. You and I are sinful. In our heart and through our actions, we fail to reflect the, the character and the beauty of who God is. But what's great about the law is that it doesn't necessarily leave us to despair. It also reminds us of our need for a savior. It reminds us of the fact that the law does accuse us, but there is someone that we can turn to when we are accused. The law is absolutely a bearer of bad news, but it's also a, a pointer to something that is good news, good news that we find in Jesus Christ. You see, the law was never created to save anyone in the same way how a thermometer was never created to make someone feel better. So when you feel sick, you don't take a thermometer and put it into your mouth and hope that somehow you'll feel better all of a sudden because we know that a thermometer is not capable of doing that. A thermometer just simply tells you how sick you are. And in the same way, when you are uh, confronted with your sinfulness, you don't look to the law and say, the law, can you save me? Because the law is not capable of saving anyone. Instead, the law shows us our need for a savior. Whereas where the law is powerless to save, the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. But the thing is that the elders in Ephesus didn't understand this. In fact, they so didn't understand the law that what they did was that they created more laws. They created more laws. If we look in chapter 4, we see that they created more laws about marriage and about food and how you should be eating food and abstaining from food. And they thought that this would be a way for them to become righteous before God. But these men completely missed the point about the law, and they were leading their people to a different savior, to a false savior. Seven Mile Road, we care deeply about having true doctrine. We care deeply about having true doctrine. 
But we don't care deeply about having true doctrine so that we can feel intellectual, that we can feel like we're smart people, or because we're trying to somehow earn favor from God. We care deeply about doctrine because it continually reminds us that God is holy, that we are not, and that we are in desperate need of a savior. That's why we care about deep doctrine, true doctrine. But the elders in Ephesus cared for no such thing. They were committed to a different doctrine, a doctrine that leads people to trust in themselves. But Paul teaches us that true doctrine is for sinners. True doctrine is for sinners, and it leads people to their Savior. In just the, the eight-something verses that we read in this first chapter of 1 Timothy, there's much that we could be learning from these false teachers in Ephesus. But my prayer for us this morning, my prayer for myself this morning, is that you and I would always, always desire true doctrine. That we would always be centered on Jesus. That we would never swerve away from anything that's less than Jesus. That you and I would be a church that is rooted in love for God and for people. That you and I would be a church where sinners can come and that they can find their Savior. May God help us to be that church. Let's pray. Father, save us from pride this morning and the false thought that somehow we could never become like Ephesus. Humble us this morning. Remind us that apart from your grace, we too can quickly turn to lesser things, proclaim lesser things, be all about lesser things, a different doctrine. This church could quickly turn from things that really don't matter and fix our energies and our time and our effort on things that don't matter in the end. But God, you have been gracious to us. You have been gracious to us because you have given us this church and we have gladly and without shame proclaimed the gospel week in and week out. And we're praying for your grace that we would continually do that. That this would be a place where we are centered on Jesus. That this would be a place where we are rooted in love for you and for the people around us. Help us to never be, become people who do things for selfish gain but we do things for the good of others and for the glory of God. And help us to be a church where sinners are welcome. Because we ourselves know where you have rescued us from. We ourselves know the sin that exists in our own lives today. You have rescued us. Help this church to be a place where sinners are welcome and that they could be pointed to their Savior. We want nothing more for Seven Mile Road but for us to be fixed on the gospel, to be living in love and community with one another, and to be a people who are pursuing those who are around us in the way that you, God, have pursued us. We confess that we can't do this on our own apart from you, but we're glad that we're partnering with you. In fact, we're just doing the very thing that you began doing in eternity past. Bless us, Father, as a church, as individuals, 
Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. It's in, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.